You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Senior Fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Technology can help mitigate climate change through the deployment of monitoring equipment. Digital sensors and QR tracking codes enable authorities to monitor disposable containers for moving coolant materials used in air conditioning systems. They also help officials enforce recent rules moving away from hydrofluorocarbons used in AC equipment. So that allows them to make sure companies are obeying the laws and moving away from chemicals that deplete the ozone and contribute to environmental degradation. Yet federal courts recently have struck down environmental protection rules on grounds that agencies do not have the authority to ban disposable containers or use QR codes to monitor shipping. There's a decision by the D.C. Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals that said the Environmental Protection Agency did not have the authority to use the latest technologies, which, if upheld by the Supreme Court, would significantly hobble enforcement efforts. In conjunction with other cases coming before the Supreme Court, it may be difficult for executive agencies in the future to use technology and other tools to protect the environment and mitigate climate change. To help us understand the situation, we're delighted to have a distinguished expert with us. Barry Rabe is a professor of public policy at the University of Michigan and a non-resident senior fellow in the Government Studies Program at Brookings. He has written a new paper for our Tech Tank blog entitled Court Limits Technology Use in Climate Protection Case. And you can read that full report on techtank at brookings.edu. So, Barry, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Daryl, thanks so much for inviting me. So, congratulations on that blog post uh, that I just mentioned. I thought you did an outstanding job explaining how technology can be helpful in environmental enforcement and why recent court decisions could make it more difficult to use some of those very same uh, digital tools. So, perhaps we can start just by uh, putting all this in context. I'd like to have you explain the Montreal Protocols on ozone-depleting substances and how those rules help deal with environmental issues. Right. Well, you know, if we want to look back at even the last half century of really great environmental advancements nationally and globally, Exhibit A remains the Montreal Protocol initially created in the 1980s to phase out chemicals that were used in those very air conditioning and refrigeration systems all around the world and transition to a more ozone-friendly set of chemicals, hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs. Uh, A very effective policy that can adjust over time. That said, those new HFCs are huge improvements, but still do pose some climate risks, especially short-term impacts when released into the atmosphere. And so since 2016, there has been a global tree, the Kigali Amendments to the Montreal Protocol, which has been actually backed now by the United States, bipartisan legislation passed in 2022, 
overwhelming Senate support for a treaty to join Kigali in 2022. And with it, this question then of how all of that would be implemented, basically trying to phase out HFC chemical use and move toward more climate-friendly chemical coolants over the next decade or so. Broad base of political support, legislation in place, implementation standpoint, and then this question of, 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 of what is acceptable through the court interpretation that you were just mentioning. But a huge environmental success story actually poised to go a lot farther, given some huge uh, advances in the, the technology of chemical coolants, uh, but also the things that we might use to enforce that. Now, that does sound like a great political success story, and it's interesting that there was such broad support for moving in this uh, direction. So tell us a little bit about how technology has been deployed to help deal with uh, some of these ozone depletion issues. Sure. So the biggest technological advance is just the, the rapid exploration of alternative chemicals that could be used in these systems all around the world, some of that being developed in the United States others globally. But then how do you get that technology into place? And how do you avoid the challenge of smuggling, illegal activity, contraband, using or reusing these substances that we're trying to phase out? Especially when we're talking about these coolant systems where they're everywhere. There's the, the, the total N of cases of refrigeration systems just in the United States is just a staggering number, much less globally. And so right after the passage of this American Innovation and Manufacturing Act, it was provisions about a 20-page statute passed into law, signed by President Trump actually in 2020, late in 2020, to then included a provision saying the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, shall ensure implementation. With that, the US EPA was mindful of uh, some examples that were beginning to emerge in Europe of smuggling illegal contraband in some of these chemicals that we're trying to phase out and developed a system to use QR tracking codes, familiar technologies, familiar to us all with multiple uses, but actually to use those to follow the, the path in trade of the production and use of some of these substances. Developed a border task force in collaboration with some of our trade partners to be on the lookout and then a decision to simply ban the use of single-use canisters to move HFCs in, in trade. The concern here being that, you know, alongside trying to monitor these the movements through QR tracking codes, you would also want to avoid the temptation to get relatively cheap canisters that you could smuggle in, in a plane or luggage or anything else, and then just get rid of them and not be accountable. The idea here was a relatively simple one. You don't use single-use canisters to move it. It's something that some of our trade partners have already been developing. So these were a couple of the relatively simple and straightforward mechanisms that EPA began to put into place, in some cases earlier this year, with some immediate early enforcement actions, finding cases of, of illegal smuggling that was underway. And a real sense of relief around the world that this might be managed with a relatively straightforward use of technology if it really took off. So that does sound like a great and very simple use of technology that would actually yield a lot of environmental benefits. And so in your blog post, you wrote about a recent court case in the D.C. Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals. So what was the issue in that case and how did the judges rule? 
Well, that's right. And so with it, these interpretations by the executive agency, it's pretty customary for executive agency actions to face legal challenges. Industry broadly defined, the chemical industry is broadly supportive of this legislation and the treaty, but there are some divides, some sectors, and there were legal challenges to actually a number of the steps that EPA was taking, some of which had less of a technological focus. And in that very court case that you mentioned, handed down just a few weeks ago, some of the things that EPA was trying to do that the allocation mechanism using a so-called cap and trade or an emissions trading system was upheld. Other provisions were upheld. But the two things that I was just mentioning the QR tracking codes, and then the single-use canister issue was thrown out. It was a two-to-one split decision. And the argument, in effect, that was used by the majority in that case was that uh, Congress did not specify in legislative text when it wrote that section, Congress shall ensure, it did not say anything about the specifics of canisters or the specificity about using QR tracking codes. And so in a clearly a divided court decision, uh, that was uh, was overturned. And it was seen that EPA had exceeded its authority, gone beyond what the statute said and allowed. Now, this raises some very interesting questions for how this goes forward. Are there ways that you know these provisions might be restored in reasonable amounts of time? Or is that the end of the story? But also possibly some ramifications for uh, other climate technologies and the like, especially when we think about what Congress does and does not actually specify or state in, in legislation. I mean, it seems like a lot of administrative agencies, and, and certainly I would put the Environmental Protection Agency in this category, use a lot of new digital tools that are emerging in, just in terms of monitoring uh, various types of things, uh, tracking them, uh, just trying to engage in oversight using the types of tools that actually have become very uh, common in the private sector. So let's assume for a moment this this two-to-one divided decision from the Court of Appeals uh, gets upheld. If that turns out to be the case, what would that decision mean for future environmental enforcement? Well, you're right, Daryl. There are a stunning array of technologies that are used, many a lot more sophisticated than QR tracking codes, that could play a huge, huge issue in not only accelerating technology transition toward cleaner energy or less carbon intensive sources, uh, but also measuring and monitoring them. My goodness, just a couple of days ago, the White House announced a CH4 methane, which has some parallels to HFCs. It's a very intensive short-lived climate pollutant, does a lot of climate damage in a short period of time, and it's been getting a lot of attention, actually both from Congress, but certainly this administration. And you saw, again, in the summit, lots of discussion how different government agencies need to work together. But an array of technologies were literally brought to the White House, some by universities, some by private firms, looking at measuring advances, satellites, other kinds of things that might be used to get a much more precise and accurate measurement of methane and methane flaring or releases into the atmosphere. Obviously, this decision only focused on the HFC case, but I think what emerges in in an important way is 
what is within the bounds of what an executive agency like EPA that deals with technology all the time and clearly wants to have the most accurate, effective oversight possible, what does that entail and what does that look like, especially as we begin to really move in some of these areas on carbon dioxide and methane, where the U.S. has set some very bold efforts and targets, and yet now there may be an expanded question about within the court system, what is is allowable, even for something as simple as, as, as trying to improve the measurement of the numbers that we're using in our systems. I mean, what I find interesting about the whole case is there are just so many agencies that are incorporating a technology in their enforcement actions. I mean, I know even in the wildlife management area, uh, like there are new imaging systems coming from satellites where they can use photographs to track herds of animals and is there poaching taking place in particular areas. And I know in general, experts have actually applauded this use of technology because it's a way to apply digital technology to enforcement cases in ways that uh, would uh, benefit a lot of different people. And I think the thing that I'm worried about, and I know you're worried about since you were writing about it, is you have to put this Court of Appeals case in a broader context of some other issues that are percolating within the judicial system and likely are going to uh, rise up to the level of the Supreme Court. So I was wondering if you could describe some of these other cases that are percolating and what they possibly could mean for this broader topic of agency enforcement in general. That's right. And just to go back to your illustration or example of wildlife, that's very true. And we, we really can see in so many, many areas some huge technological advances. And then this question of how our policy system is going to respond. I would just note before getting more fully into your responding to your question, that this is really an area of American exceptionalism. In general, the pattern around the world amongst climate mitigation leading nations has been to develop clear statutory goals and targets or legislative goals, but then delegate or defer to agencies. And so this kind of conflict we're seeing in the U.S., as illustrated in this case, uh, seems to be quite unique. Now, I also think what's so interesting about this case is it is not the Supreme Court. And so obviously, in recent years, we've looked closely at cases, West Virginia versus EPA and others, that have dealt with how much authority executive agencies have to address or even develop new policies for carbon mitigation, the Clean Power Plan, and other kinds of things. And with this comes a, a larger orbit of, of issues about the authority of executive agencies to interpret existing or new statute and try to come to terms with this, especially in cases where Congress may not have deep, deep technological expertise or even want to go on record about what kind of satellite or what kind of sensor system to use or deploy opens all of this up. I think we can see a couple of possible tracks for this. The Supreme Court, uh, looking ahead, uh, has already accepted a case that relates to the issue of, there's another form of wildlife, herring, and herring management and fisheries issues. Uh, this is an area of jurisdiction under the federal government to set fishery management practices and policies. With it, 
uh, a case will be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court that's actually an appeal of something from the same appellate court that ruled on the HFC case just a few weeks ago. And it deals with the question of the federal government's ability to apply fees to cover the costs of monitoring uh, fish, in this case, literally herring migration and herring concentrations in in areas of of, of federal federal jurisdiction. And underlying all of that is not just the narrow issue of how you best track herring and how you use that technology, but whether or not federal agencies, in this case, it's not EPA, it would be the Commerce Department, has gone too far with those plans and actually imposes a, a cost asking industry to, to pay, basically cover the costs of the management and the monitoring and some of the, some of the technology. That's on tap for uh, the coming circuit. Justice Jackson has had to already recuse herself, probably because she was involved in that appellate decision. This is seen as a major step in confronting the future of the so-called Chevron decision reached about 40 years ago by the Supreme Court that broadly defined was seen as giving executive agencies like Commerce, like EPA, some latitude to respond to circumstances, respond to emerging technologies, and to do their work without having to get hyper-specific in legislative text. That doctrine has been bounced around. There have been lots of avid supporters and critics of it. But that um, fisheries case, it's actually known as Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo, watch for it in the coming Supreme Court term, is seen as one major, major test of the Chevron doctrine in an area that has some ramifications for environment, natural resources, protection, and others. But I also think, Daryl, that we are going to begin to see more and more challenges brought into the federal courts. We might read about them less. They might be at you know, lower court levels or maybe not even get into the system. But does now this create this uncertainty about what is acceptable, create a new window? So if you are a potential litigant and you are looking for some way to slow down or derail or undermine a new regulatory technique, Say you're concerned, you produce oil and gas, and you really would rather not have more accurate satellite measurement of your emissions, that it's easier to do it the old-fashioned way, and you can usually undercount your emissions. Is that something that is EPA begins to interpret, say, the Inflation Reduction Act and tries to develop a more accurate measurement system of methane for development of a, of a stat- statutorily approved fee? Does that become a, a kind of target? There are also provisions that EPA is looking at in the in the environmental arena for methane that would allow uh, individuals, certified third parties, to go to sites and try to measure and report on these things, the so-called super emitters program. Would that kind of evidence or material information be admissible under the courts? And so I, I do think we're, we've kind of opened up the sluice gates, if you will, just as the U.S. has become more ambitious in the Biden administration on climate mitigation. And then you combine this new jurisprudential question, but uncertainty about just what that means. Do you also begin to have more and more and more challenges where litigants try to throw something to slow down potential progress and potential technologies that could be put in play, but they might be able to derail if they can get a hearing in federal courts. That's a, that's a larger and longer term agenda. And I think we'll know much more about 
executive agency issues in the next year or so as some of these cases, like the Herring case, uh, are, are decided. I mean, that's a great uh, explanation of why all these cases are so important. And we know that this Supreme Court has not been reluctant to take on uh, big cases and big issues and overturn precedents. So I think everybody's paying particular attention to some of these environmental uh, cases just because when you look at uh, what seems to be percolating. So, you know, if administrative agencies are not able to use technology to monitor whatever it is they happen to be tracking, if they can't apply fees to cover the monitoring devices. You mentioned the super emitter uh, program. Like We're talking about major enforcement actions that these agencies have been using for decades that may end up uh, going away. So it uh, potentially could be uh, quite uh, profound. So if you take all those things uh, together, uh, just explain to our listeners why all these uh, both the decisions that have uh, taken place and then some of the cases that are percolating are potentially so problematic for environmental enforcement. Well, there's the domestic side of this, and then there's also a global side of this. And that is not only how does the U.S. control emissions easily under control within its own boundaries, but play a constructive role with our trade partners and in any kind of global or international regime. One of the things that I found so interesting about the HS, the recent HFC case was that in partial dissent that was written, it really talked about these international and trade issues and even referred to the treaty that the Senate had, had endorsed. In the majority opinion, you kind of got a sense the U.S. is kind of hermetically sealed on this. It's a purely domestic question and issue. And on an issue like climate change, it is global climate change. The U.S. is not an island. And when we talk about tracking and monitoring and technologies, even when we move away then from climate change into air emissions or water emissions, these are issues that are moving across certainly state, but national boundaries, continental boundaries all the time. So it really is an opportunity to use and deploy those technologies, if for no other reason than to actually measure the volumes of contaminants that are being released into the atmosphere or, or, and how they, are, and how they are, are migrating. So this poses a really significant potential threat to domestic policy in the United States, but how the U.S. engages and relates with its, with its trade partners. Again, even something as simple as these uh, canister issues. Uh, we saw under the Montreal Protocol for an extended amount of time examples of, of some smuggling. Even until a few years ago, there was there's evidence that there was illegal production of the pre-HFC chemicals in a facility in China that would appear in various places. Monitoring is going to be really significant. Enforcement is going to be significant. And how do these tools work? I also think underlying all of this then is if we are going to be moving into context where courts are going to constrain how executive agencies can interpret legislation, how is the legislative branch going to deal with this? We've gone through a very, very extended period in the American experience where Congress has not reauthorized clean air and clean water legislation in decades. We've seen a, a spurt of, of new environmental and climate legislation in recent, in recent years. But are we going to have to go to the point for technology to be used, for monitoring to take place, for 
legislation that would be dauntingly complex, highly scientific, highly technical? And then how does current Congress engage and, 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 and work with that? And how much technical expertise do members of Congress or their staffs have to have to, to write something that would explain a, a legally appropriate technological use for an executive agency? Uh, and that potentially becomes daunting. That's something that legislatures elsewhere around the world just don't have to worry about because they're given that that flexibility. And I think it's interesting to point out that, as you mentioned, most of the legislative action on the environment over the past, let's say, 40 to 50 years has been bipartisan in nature. Certainly the Clean Air Act uh, was adopted on a bipartisan uh, measure. It's only been in relatively recent times where the environment has become polarized. There have been partisan differences that have emerged, and it has become very difficult for Congress to extend uh, some of these environmental uh, rules. And just given the current level of hyperpartisanship and hyperpolarization that we see in Congress, if the courts basically say agencies cannot do anything unless it is specifically and explicitly authorized by Congress, this could be a very bad formula for going forward. Uh, given the fact that it's going to be difficult for Congress to write very specific uh, enforcement uh, rules, uh, given the highly partisan nature of our current uh, political environment. So I just wonder going forward, uh, kind of how some of these issues will play out. What is the timeline we're expecting in in terms of uh, possible court decisions? I think you mentioned uh, one of these uh, cases is going to be uh, heard by the Supreme Court in the coming year, which means that a decision uh, could happen by June of 2024. Uh, what do you see as the timeline for uh, some of these possible court decisions? Certainly we'll know much more about the future of the Chevron decision and broadly defined executive authority, executive agency authority for interpretation within about the next year or so. But even within that, the question of exactly how far that goes, exactly what that means, I think is going to kind of spill out over a much more extended period of time. Multiple years, multiple court terms, possibly decades. And you could literally go into a period or a process of kind of trial or error. What would survive muster? What would not? I think it's so interesting in the in the recent HFC case decision that a few elements and provisions did get through. One actually involving sort of the blends of chemicals or HFC, different versions of HFC chemicals or subgroups could could get through. Court didn't touch on that, but then picked out these other ones. I'm not sure that we're going to get in you know one single court decision say next year clear, crisp marching orders so that. We all know exactly what is and is not permissible. And this could really play out for an extended period of time. And I think this becomes especially challenging because in many instances, you know, we have relatively new or newer statutes. You mentioned, Daryl, you know, the history of bipartisanship. We've actually seen some continued signs of that into the last decade, even though, as you say, state quite rightly, we're in this era of hyperpartisanship. In 2016, uh, the last stages of the Obama administration, there was bipartisan support for a major reauthorization of chemical safety legislation that had languished for 40 years. Similar kinds of issues in that instance and case were a number of years into implementation, but theoretically, 
issues could be raised at how closely EPA was following the, the doctrines of that 2016 legislation, the bipartisan infrastructure law of 2021. And even the, the AMAC, the HFC legislation was passed with deep bipartisan support in 2020. Different story when we get to the Inflation Reduction Act, which was purely partisan. But the point here is actually whether it would be a partisan or bipartisan foundation or not, we have a lot of new statute. We have a lot of new policy going through the system that agencies like EPA, Commerce, Interior, and others are looking at, trying to interpret, and clearly congressional intent was to move on these things, to get things going, to put things in place. How that, how those things begin to confront new court regimes, again, I think is going to play out for some extended periods of time. And we're already seeing in a number of states uh, states that want to do their own thing or build on these things, kind of responding to that that potential federal uncertainty. Well, those are terrific insights on these uh, pending court decisions. There's certainly lots of big issues that are uh, percolating, and people really need to pay attention to how these decisions unfold because, as you uh, point out, Barry, the possible ramifications, not just in the environmental area, but in other uh, agency activities could be uh, quite uh, profound. So I want to thank Barry for sharing his thoughts with us today. At Brookings, we write regularly about these issues, and you can find more information at brookings.edu. Thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast. And sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.